If you were in church last week, you know that we're doing a series uh, this summer and most probably next summer on the book of Acts, which is the story of the early church. In, in many ways, the first four gospels of Jesus combined with the book of Acts are like the new Torah, not replacing Genesis through Deuteronomy, but the new story of the new exodus of God's people, uh, which is the, the dominant metaphor of the New Testament for the work of Jesus Christ, that he took his people out of slavery through great trial that he did in order to free us. The book of Acts is that story, and um, boy, it's an imperfect group. As you'll see in almost every chapter, they are filled with the Holy Spirit, and yet they still argue with one another. Their works are irrefutably good, and yet the civic authorities still uh, arrest them, sometimes kill them, throw them in prison. And yet, the church continues to grow because the gospel is true and the Holy Spirit is unstoppably good. Not because the church is perfect or their message is perfectly clear or they had a perfect game plan to start out with, but because in spite of our imperfections, God is still good and his gospel is still true. If you have a Bible, we're looking at Acts chapter 2, and I'm just going to read the whole thing. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. From Acts chapter 1, that's about 120 or so followers of Christ. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. It would have been cool if you could have helped me out there with some kind of <laughs> metaphor. And divided tongues as of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, the multitude came together and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished like you and I would be if we were on a bus Uh, And we could tell that people were from different races and that they were in fact speaking different languages, but we could understand them. So they were amazed and astonished, saying, are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, those who did not grow up Jewish but came to faith. That's what that word means. Cretans and Arabians, we hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God, and all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, to one another what does this mean? But others, mocking, said, they're filled with new wine. Because they were human beings like you and me. And when amazing things happen... Some people were amazed and others were skeptical. And so what's their explanation? They're drunk. But Peter, picking up in verse 14, standing with the 11, lifted up his voice and addressed the men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem. Let this be known to you and give ear to my words. For these men are not drunk, as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. Let me just make that colloquial. They're not drunk. It's nine o'clock in the morning is what he just said. For su- 
But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. And your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants, in those days I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in the heavens above, and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness, and the moon to blood, before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved." Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell with hope. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. The reason he keeps quoting the Old Testament, the book of Joel is a minor prophet. David was a, a spiritual representative and king is because he's talking to Jewish men and women who knew about Joel and David. To you and I, those, those passages are challenging, perhaps, but to the men and women who were listening to Peter talk, they knew these references. They did not connect them with Jesus until now, but that's why he's quoting the Old Testament. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David, that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet... And knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. Remember Peter standing with all the disciples. It's like the 12 of them standing there, even though Peter's the one talking. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, now he's quoting a psalm, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized. Every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone who the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and there were added that day about 3,000 souls. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers, and awe came upon every soul. And many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles, and all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all 
as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. In the middle of reading that many verses, I'm like, why would I do that to myself? Attempt to explain to you in 20-ish minutes all that just happened, according to the early church. The reason is we want to hear the whole story of the beginning of the church of Jesus Christ. And yet so much happens chapter to chapter. Luke and Acts form a two-part series that makes up two-thirds of the entire words of the New Testament. So the New Testament has 27 books in it, but most of the books are really short. Luke and Acts are not, and it's because the story of God's pursuit of his people, the story of the church's growth, despite internal bickering and external persecution, is an amazing one. So it begins with the Spirit descending. Except times a billion right? Because the 120 people are in one room, but the Jewish men and women who were in town for the feast, this is the second feast after Passover, uh, heard it and all came to the temple. The temple in Jerusalem is the only place where 3,000 people could all be together. So they all came together and they hear the apostles talking about Jesus and how he rose from the dead and they can understand him. Even though they're from an area, if you look on a map and you chart out, Google Maps will actually do this. Google Maps has a Bible section. Did you know that? And you can look at Acts chapter 2 and you'll see a big square across the Mediterranean and the ancient Near East and bits of Africa. And it's about 1,000 miles long and maybe 600 miles tall. That's, that's the range that Luke describes. And the reason that all those uh, cities and areas are important is... <laughs> never quite get used to this part of outdoor preaching, which I love. I'll talk to Bradley. We have someone that works up at the base. Maybe he could, never mind. The reason it's important for you and I to notice Parthians, Medes, Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, Libya, Cyrene, visitors from Rome, Jews, Cretans, Arabians, is because we have uh, historical, meaning uh, literature and archaeological evidence that those are the main places where Jews lived in the first century. So it's another proof that Luke really did his homework. And the group of people that came to hear Peter preach were actually from those places. We have paper documentation and archaeological documentation that what Luke said is true. Now again, I can't convince you that supernatural things happen if you're not a follower of Christ. But I can tell you that this book is incredibly evidentially accurate. It's frightening how accurate it is actually archaeology continues to uncover that Luke nailed it in his story of the early church. Why did the Spirit descend and draw in these people from around the world? Because Jesus said right before the night that he was betrayed and the day before he was crucified, he said he is the vine. That's in John chapter 15. You're like, why is Jesus a plant? The vine is an Old Testament metaphor for the nation of Israel. So Jesus is saying, I now embody the nation of Israel. So anyone that trusts me becomes engrafted into that. So what the Spirit is doing is not only filling the apostles and the others that were following Christ with the Holy Spirit, it's uniting the church and then sending it back out. 
uniting them in Christ through faith in him and then sending them back to all the places that Luke lists. One thing that I find really interesting about this section of scripture is how many, there, there are Christians that want to, um, that don't like talking about gifts of the Holy Spirit and there are Christians that's all they talk about are gifts of the Holy Spirit. And this section in Acts chapter two is kind of short the section on the descent of the Holy Spirit. Instead, more text is given to Peter's speech. Don't you want to know more of what it was like to see divided tongues of fire over the heads of 120 men and women? Don't you want to know whether that's supposed to happen more often? Don't you want to know what it felt like to them? And Luke could have asked them because he knew most of them but he didn't. Not because this story didn't matter, as some stodgy Christians would sort of imply. They would never say that Acts 2 doesn't matter. They just don't want to talk about gifts of the Holy Spirit. And other Christians, that's all they want to talk about. What Luke wants to talk about is the Spirit descended in order to draw people to the gospel of Christ. Where am I getting that from? Just a couple of verses talking about the Holy Spirit and then lots and lots and lots and lots and lots of verses of Peter explaining the gospel to men and women. I do want to say a couple of things about this. There's the gift. The gift of the Holy Spirit is what every Christian receives, which is the assurance that they are Christ's and he is theirs. But gifts of the Holy Spirit. Some people get some gifts. Other people get other gifts. Nobody gets all the gifts. And the thing for Christians is to watch out for any judgment that somebody has this gift and somebody else doesn't have this gift. That's not what we're supposed to do. Why would we call it a gift if we think everybody's supposed to have it? Or anybody could make themselves have it. We would call it something else if it were that. And the reason I say that is because in verse 33... Peter says, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit. So the gift is the indwelling Holy Spirit that assures our hearts that we are known and loved by Christ. Verse 38, Peter said, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So there's the gift, and then there are gifts, and everybody receives the gift, and everybody receives some gifts, and nobody receives all the gifts. Right? Right. Okay, we're good. And I love that in the midst of the Spirit descending, the apostles being filled and can clearly speak to men and women from a thousands of miles around the world, in the midst of that, some people are like, but I think they're drunk. And Peter opens the first speech after the Holy Spirit descends with, we're not drunk, it's nine o'clock in the morning, which is what the third hour means. And the reason that I think that's fun is the human element is never left out of the gospel of, or the, the book of Acts because that's the way it happened. Because the disciples did not go into a room and plan some new religion so that they could take over the world, which is the criticism especially of 19th century idealist philosophers and such. And how do we know that? Because they make themselves look kind of foolish occasionally. That's not necessarily what happens in this chapter, but there are a number of regular human elements. 
men and women being amazed and astonished and amazed and perplexed, and some of them saying that we're drunk, and Peter opening with, no, we're not drunk. I want to know more about the divided tongues of fire, Peter. And he doesn't open the story that way. At no point are we ever left to think that this is a narrative involving um, men and women that are not human. Which is one of the confusing things about the Bible, by the way. Most other religious texts talk esoterically about the heavens, whether that's God or gods. They talk about what you and I are supposed to do. The Bible is full of narratives. I mean, this, this particular one will tell us what to do and in fact what to believe, but it's a long narrative, right? Most religious texts are lots and lots of, of uh, description and command, and a little bit of story. And the Bible is just the opposite. So the Spirit descends, and Peter preaches. And the summary of his sermon is, first of all, we're not drunk. Second of all, this is for everyone. Verse 18 and verse 21. This good news is for everyone. Humans in their brokenness turn anything into an exclusive belief or practice or politic, or way. And the Holy Spirit's having none of that. God has none of that. This good news is for everyone. Everyone who will call Christ Lord and Savior. Peter mentions that this is the day of the Lord, but the, the, the day of the Lord is not over. He's using a metaphor to describe that Jesus has come, we have good news, but he has not yet returned. This is him quoting in Joel. In the last days, 17 and 18, and into 19, he's talking about what happens after Jesus. The Spirit has been poured out for everyone. And yet, verse 19 and 20, the sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to to blood before the day of the Lord comes. You're like, so it's the day of the Lord, but it's not the day of the Lord? Yep. It's the day of the Lord in the sense that he descended. He became flesh in Christ but he has not made all things new. He has not judged the quick and the dead, as some of the creeds say. And then he says, this Jesus, part one, because he's going to say this Jesus again. Verse 23. I have to hold on to this. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. So there was no stopping it. But you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Whole bunch of stuff going on there. Peter's assuring them that this had to happen. He's reminding them that Jesus was killed very... Un- There's the, that's right. There's the mighty wind. Thank you, Bill. Peter's reminding them that what happened to Jesus was incredibly lawless. I mean, isn't it interesting that one of the most... Uh, precise and just governments in the history of government, the Roman Empire, crucified an innocent man. And one of the most precise and just religions of all time, the Jewish faith, condemned an unjust man. 
Peter's reminding them of that because it only happened two months ago. And the reason he's reminding them of that is not because he wants them to feel, he doesn't want them to feel bad in the sense of you're bad and that's all it'll ever be. But he wants to remind them this happened unjustly and we were complicit in it. One of the things that is hardest to explain about the Bible or perhaps easiest to explain but hardest to make sound like good news is the fact that men and women are all complicit. You're like, I wasn't there. I didn't crucify Jesus. No, but you were born into humanity, which is broken and in desperate need of full saving. And you and I continue to sin. We continue to display that we're born as humans by hurting other people. Right? That's the point Peter's making to them. He doesn't want them to feel bad and go away sad. He wants them to notice that Jesus died unjustly They had something to do with that, even if they were in Phrygia at the time, because of their humanness, so that they'll then repent and be baptized. This Jesus. And then Peter spends a lot of time describing that this was predicted by David. And the reason that that's important is not just because it was a prediction hundreds of years before Jesus, but because David was a representative king. He wrote Psalms. He represented the nation before God. The story of David and Goliath is not about you and I and our big issues. It's about how we need a substitute to stand in front of sin and death. That's actually the story. So he's reminding them about David who died and was buried and his body decayed, right? In order to say Jesus is a new and more perfect or perfect David who stands in front of sin and death and defeats them and allows you and I to stand before God. So David was a type, or Jesus, how do I say this? David is a type of which Jesus is the fulfillment. And then they are all feeling the weight of this. They're like, okay, Peter, we get it. We understand the connections you made from the Psalms and from the book of Joel and from 2 Samuel. Okay, what do we do? And he says, repent and be baptized which means trust Jesus, not yourself. Repent, which means trust Jesus, not the world. Not because the world is an entirely evil place, but it is not to be trusted with saving us. This Jesus. Call him Lord and Christ. So he tells them to repent and be baptized. And again, we're looking at I would like to know how they baptize all of them. You know, I'm constantly thinking about church logistics. We have a nice baptismal down here. Maybe they did the sprinkling. If we all did a survey, there'd be different kinds of baptism. And I'm wondering, how did they do this church? We don't know. But we know that these listeners to that first speech were ready to say, I'm sorry that I tried to save myself. I'm going to turn That's what the word repent means. I'm going to turn as a lifestyle, as a faith, as a philosophy. I'm going to turn and trust Jesus as Lord and Christ. Which is fascinating because when Peter said that, that was illegal. It was illegal to say, Yesu Kurios, Jesus is Lord. He said it twice. And to the Jewish men and women, to call him Christ is offensive 
Now you mean the carpenter who was crucified two months ago? That guy? I'm supposed to say he's my Messiah? Yep. We all saw him rise from the dead. Peter said it so compellingly that they were willing to put their trust and their belief and their hope and their faith in Jesus to save them and to help them that day and the next week and eternally. It was illegal to call him Lord. Peter did it twice. It's offensive to a Jew to call him Messiah unless it was true, unless he rose from the dead, proving that he can in fact save us. Read verse 36 again. Let that all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. According to the scriptures, you and I are complicit in the brokenness of the world. And the only answer to that, the only answer to our tendency and willingness and ability to hurt others, and more profoundly, the only answer to the, the brokenness of the world that was there before we were born, but we're part of, is to call him Lord and Christ. And at this point, the asylum is born. The painting that perhaps the Holy Spirit wants me to stop using because it knocked it over earlier is called Asylum. And it's from a couple of years ago, a vision series that we did for the church, but um, I just love it. Some of you love that I love abstract art and others of you do not. Listen to this definition by Merriam-Webster of an asylum. I'm going to read four different definitions and they all play into why I love this painting. An inviolable place of refuge and protection, giving shelter to criminals and debtors. So we love the first part. Like, but I'm not a criminal. According to the scriptures, we are. We hurt others. We violate love for God and neighbor by our actions. Definition two, a place of retreat and security, a shelter. Definition three, the the protection or security afforded by an asylum for a refugee, a place of refuge. 3B, protection from the arrest and extradition given especially to political refugees by a nation or by an embassy or other agency enjoying freedom from what is required by law for most people. Do you wonder why you feel not at home in the world, followers of Christ? It is because your citizenship is in heaven. It is because you've been given a new heart that is made for a renewed place. That is why the world feels so disordered to you because it is and you have some sense and it might be vague and fleeting but occasionally you know that this world is not your home. That is because if you're a follower of Christ you've been given a new heart and it will only be fully at rest with him. You have full assurance now but full rest then in the kingdom. Fourth definition listed by Merriam-Webster is somewhat old-fashioned. An institution providing care and protection to needy individuals and especially the mentally ill. And the reason that I read that out loud is not because I think that we are mentally ill, but because I know that we look that way to those that do not trust Christ. Because we're saying we're entire messes. We believe that all have fallen short of the glory of God. 
and that we need Christ. We eat a little piece of bread and drink a little bit of unfermented wine the first of every month saying, this is the body and blood of Jesus Christ who's for us. And this is a great feast. That's one of my favorite parts of communion is that we call that a feast. Someone with no knowledge of Christianity that sees our feast, how intrigued are they going to be? And yet, inasmuch as we are supposed to be a place of refuge and protection because the gospel is true and we believe it and we remind one another of it for our comfort, we are a sent asylum. It is never just for us. We are to tell others there's hope. There's peace to be found in trusting Christ. There's joy and contentment in calling him Lord and Christ as Peter was encouraging them to do. This is the fun moment when you look down at your notes and you notice that you have not mentioned the end of Acts chapter 2, which are the four marks of a church. Praying, sharing what they have with one another, the teaching of the disciples in the sacrament. Pretty important stuff. And yet, um, I want to keep the sermon, you know, less than an hour. It is really important, by the way, that Luke notes that Peter said other things. Because otherwise, you'd be like, hey, 3,000 people were converted and Peter only preached for like seven minutes. How come you can't do that? But Luke points out he said other things too. So, you know. So what did the asylum do? What did the sent people of Christ do? They learned to pray. They learned to share with one another what they had financially and otherwise. They devoted themselves to understanding what God says about himself and what he says about us. And they took the sacrament, a trusting move that we partially understand where we take the body and the blood of Christ and say, you're my hope. I trust you as Lord and Christ. And the reason that the early church and even this church are indomitable is not because They were so efficient. We'll see in Acts chapter 6, they have to redivide the whole church because they're accidentally giving preferential treatment to some of their widows. The reason that they're indomitable is not because their speeches were so compelling. I think if you were honest, when I was reading some of Peter's speech, you started to phase out a little bit because you don't remember Joel chapter 2 and Psalm 110 and 2 Samuel, and that's okay. The reason that the early church was indomitable in its growth is not because Peter's speech was so perfect, but it's because the Holy Spirit is good, draws men and women to himself because he loves them, longs for them to live lives of life today and eternally. So in spite of internal opposition and external persecution and the fact that a bunch of people in the, in the area thought they were drunk, the Holy Spirit still grew the church and it continues to grow it today. Many of you have called Jesus Lord and Christ for a long time. Be encouraged that he loves you and he's drawn you into a life of life. Some of us are considering the gospel of Jesus. It is this, that God loves you. And because of the work of Christ that Peter referenced here, you can be reconciled to God. And then you can learn the imperfect joy 
of the asylum where we learn to pray, where we learn to have things in common. Largely, our deacons are to thank for that. Where we go back to the word, where we share the sacrament. Would you pray with me? Father, would you help us as you helped those men and women that were listening and those men and women that stood with the apostles, would you help us to understand that you love us? That the world is broken and we contribute to that brokenness and in the midst of that, while that was still happening, Jesus died and then rose from the dead to reconcile us to you forever. Would you help us as a church function like the early church, having things in common, learning to pray, going back to your word, enjoying the sacrament? Would you help us in those ways?